Let's try this. You're listening to Almost Heretical. Coming to you from a shed in Bend, Oregon. Welcome to the podcast. The Elohim knew both good and evil as a race of beings, essentially, and that now Adam and Eve are going to take the human race into that same same place. You can find us online at almostheretical.com. Welcome back into Almost Heretical. Uh, we're going to do a question and response episode because I had a ton of questions after that last episode. I don't know about you. If you do have questions for a future question and response episode, you can call in, leave your name and your city, and then record your question, and we'll take those. Number to call is 503-343-4788. Okay, so we talked about the fall, and number of things came up for me. First of all, this isn't really a question, it's just a statement, but I... Kind of is a question. I have a question at the end of it, but I kind of grew up a little bit with that, with I guess a little bit of the belief that Satan had had some sort of a, you know, he wanted to be he wanted to be like God, and he fell away as an angel, and you know, so so I guess I kind of had some sort of. Wait, is there like a verse? Is there something about that? Where did we get that? Yes, is it there? I mean, where did you you mentioned um, in the fall? part one episode that the early church fathers, that was basically the, the common view amongst them. Um, where did they get that? Where do we, I, I just know I grew up with that. So I'm trying to figure out where that came from. Yeah. So, okay, we'll just do this right now. Cause here we are. Oh, is this, uh, is this part two? No, this is a, oh, okay. we'll, we'll see. It's right. just, uh, it's going to take more than a minute. So, <laughs> uh, I think I, I mentioned in an early episode that nowhere in the old Testament is, uh, the word Satan used, uh, specifically, uh, it's possible in one in one verse, uh, but it's not used very commonly. I think it's uh, seven or eight times in the Old Testament, and uh, it's typically, specifically, not a proper proper name. And in and all the other places, it could just as easily, or probably better, interpreted as as a normal improper noun, meaning adversary or uh, or accuser, something along those lines, than it is a figure. And and nowhere, nowhere in the Old Testament. Is Satan ever connected to the serpent, the Nakash, in Genesis? <clears throat> and that's really telling. We can't take it too far because we're Christians and we have the New Testament. But it is really telling because it should open our minds essentially to kind of some of the assumptions here. One of them, I'll just point out this. Part of the reason we're doing this podcast is because most of us have very little supernatural in our worldview. Most of us have a hard enough time believing in one God, let alone a whole, a whole plethora of them all over the place. So Satan is about as far as a lot of us have been able to go in terms of pointing to some other divine spirit figure that might have some, uh, some impact uh, in the world. And it's been easy for us to keep some sort of sense of Satan and hold on to an idea that monotheism means there is just one divine being because essentially Satan for a Christian has become this all-encompassing figure that allows us to kind of say, well, it's maybe God and Satan. Even if we don't know where that, where he came yeah, from or what Yeah, even if we don't have an explanation. Or... And so to us, God and Satan doesn't come close to God and a whole world of other Elohim spirit beings. It's just this one kind of confusing piece. But What's telling is that if, if that is the view of the Old Testament writers, that there was somehow just one figure, they would have clearly multiple times made the connection between the Nakash, the tempter in Genesis 3, and a Satan figure or some of the other uh, 
figures that get kind of wrapped up in the Satan term. They didn't. Why? Because they had a whole world of beings that they could point to as having uh, effects on things happening in the world and influences. They believed in a whole plethora of gods. And they didn't need to wrap them all up into one person. They didn't have a problem holding a view with multiple malevolent beings in in the divine realm, in the spirit realm. They could even, as you see in the Gospels, have a view where they're like around every corner, where almost every other person Jesus runs into has one or more demons inhabiting them. So that's that's the first piece. But when you get to the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and we'll notice when you get to the New Testament, Satan is now used left and right, and at least in most places, is used as a kind of singular figure. And there's a whole literary world of development between the Old Testament, and they call this uh, intertestamental literature, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And And a lot of scholars will point to Hellenistic influence, meaning Israelites were invaded by the Greek Empire uh, before the Roman Empire, and Greeks had this approach, the Greek Empire under Alexander and others had this approach, rather than killing everybody, they would essentially try to preserve the, the value, the cultural value of the people they would, they would uh, overtake by, by keeping them alive, especially the smartest of them, and then just indoctrinating them with their own cultural values and worldview and getting them to to remain essentially assets in the empire. So all that to say, there's this trend that people point to that that the term Hellenism is used to kind of say like the Greekification of other cultures. So there's this term called Hellenism. So say, for example, you're applying it to ancient Israelites, essentially means the merging of Greek culture, Greek imperial culture, with Jewish-Israelite culture. And part of a huge part... (laughs) No, like the main part of Greek culture is is Greek religious ideas of the gods, the pantheon, and a whole set of ideas around fate and all sorts of stuff. And that's not to say that somehow like Judaism got corrupted just because they're around people that thought differently. There were actually points, and, and this is where modern scholarship doing comparisons between the biblical texts and other cultures around the people that produce these texts creates these like mind-blowing connections to say, oh, they were actually saying this thing, using this motif, using this metaphor, because their neighbors, that's how they thought about their god or their gods or their pantheon or whatever. And they're, they're doing that in a sense to contextualize Jewish belief, but also to make more sense of it to say, you know, one example we use is, is Yahweh as the divine warrior who, who battles and defeats the other gods. And by defeating the other gods, uh, establishes himself as a true king. So if you remember, we won't get into the text, but if you remember Job, uh, the story yeah. of Job ends up I was going to ask about that earlier. Yeah, it's this long rant, essentially, that God goes on, a, where were you when I slay Behemoth? And, and, oh, that's uh, not what I was going to ask about. Oh. <laughs> I was going to ask we'll about We'll get to them, the Satan piece later. Yeah, them uh, talking. The but it's this motif that God had, uh, and it gets used actually in connection with the Exodus story, that God slayed the chaos monsters of antiquity. Now, there's a, a sense in which that just kind of doesn't jive with the broader biblical idea, which is that God is supreme because he's the one true creator of everything else that exists. But what they're doing is essentially saying, hey, I'm kind of going to give you this little polemic shot here to say you think Baal is the one that conquered chaos defeated sea, the seas and the oceans and the darkness and the desert and therefore reigned supreme. And I'm going to say, no, no, no. What you think, what you want to ascribe to Baal, 
I'm going to ascribe that to Yahweh. I'm using that as an example, one, to say the pushback in kind of evangelical world that is really afraid of these kind of comparison studies, afraid of people like John Walton who want to actually read other texts from other religions and say, hey, there are things here that we have in common that we should consider, like the flood story and stuff like that. We don't have to be afraid of similarities in other other places, and we don't even have to be afraid of cultural, let me say cultural influence. This all started because we were talking about Satan, and scholars will essentially point to Greek cultural influence on Jews living under the Greek empire as the most likely explanation for why you move from what I'll call a a very primitive uh, demonology in the Old Testament to what you get to a few hundred years later by the time of Jesus is a is a much more sophisticated, and sophisticated just mean more complicated, demonology where you have multiple named figures like Beelzebul and the Satan figure that get connected with other figures. And you have this whole concern with exorcism and, uh, and demons possessing people that you simply don't see in the Old Testament. There is no possession in the Old Testament. You ha- you, there's a clear development from one to the other. So that's kind of step one in answering your question, Nate, is that there is this broader development going on that is trying to, to basically work out and explain and make sense of their pre-existing uh, spiritual divine cosmology view of the world and their interaction with Greek culture, which had all sorts of its own myths about the daimonion, which is where we get the word demon, and these spirit figures that had kind of different reputations and different functions that they played, had a, had a significant influence. That doesn't mean it's not inspired or not somehow authentic biblical text or whatever. So one of the first things we see is part of this progression movement is it goes from being pretty simple. There's this other realm with a bunch of beings. Some of them at least rebelled. And then we'll get into when we talk about the rest of the fall in Tower of Babel, there is kind of then this next step in growth of some of those divine beings take on these more overt rebellion roles and play out in in sort of the idolatry concern in the Old Testament. And, And then what you get is this massive complication where you have more figures, more characters, demons around every corner. And as a result of that, then you get a kind of simplification. And a part of that simplification is to kind of create an amalgam. And I think Satan, the figure of Satan in the New Testament is an amalgam of ideas. What I mean by that is it's it's one figure which has got pieces like sticky taped onto it from different Mm. places, different ideas. And so by the time you get to the end of the Bible and Revelation... It clearly says in Revelation 12, 9, there's nothing like this even close to it in the Old Testament. Verse 9, the great dragon, okay, so you have, you have one uh, uh, idea here, a dragon, okay, uh, which is um, essentially a, a kind of chaos monster, hurled down. That same dragon is that ancient serpent, Nakash, who now for the first time we're connecting that Nakash in the garden to some other malevolent spiritual figure called the devil diabolos uh, which is another word coming from greek which has some other meanings to it or satan so by the time you get to the end of the bible you now have like 
uh, almost like have you seen uh, the new planet Earth where there are those trees that they let their seeds off that are like so sticky that birds get so many of them stuck to them that they literally can't fly anymore and they die. It's like these ideas get all stuck in one place um, for the sense of helping us wrap our minds around obscure and, and complex ideas. And so what, get, what happens is New Testament writers, especially in light of Jesus, go backward looking at the gospel, uh, looking through the gospel back towards the Old Testament and start kind of piecing things together retrospectively. So this is the first time that the Nakash gets, gets dubbed in with the Satan figure. And like I said, there were other, you're reading it in the Gospels before you get to Revelation, there are a whole bunch of other ideas that are already attributed to the figure of Satan that weren't explained in the Old Testament. You don't get a biography of Satan before you start reading the Gospels where Jesus is going to war with Satan. It's just assumed that you kind of have this this sense in mind. Uh, but then the other piece, which has <laughs> created dr- great confusion, some interesting theology and great confusion uh, in church history, is this idea of a morning star. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Oh, Troy, you know that I was, because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. He works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. (laughs) Um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. talked in an early episode that it was just made natural, logical sense, and the Bible attests to it over and over again, that the ancients and pretty much all cultures looked up to the night sky and attributed some kind of divinity, some kind of supernatural life action. When they looked up and saw bright globes, which they called stars and the moon and the sun. I can't really blame them. You know, I mean, the thing's floating up there. No, exactly. You can't touch it. Yeah, and espe- yeah, we didn't need to get into it, especially... It's in the same spot every think, night. No, the Earth was round, and they had this view of the planet as essentially being this table on stilts, and they thought they were looking at the bottom of God's world. That's why literally the Earth is deemed God's footstool, as he was pictured as being seated on some sort of platform up in the skies, basically above resting his feet on the planet. But anyway, there's a reason why throughout the Old Testament you have multiple moments where the Israelites are specifically warned not to worship the stars. There are specific references to the sons of God 
Again, the sons of God is the term referencing the kind of like highest order of the Elohim who are in God's sort of tight-knit world who end up in rebellion. The sons of God are conflated with stars multiple times. It's a, a kind of metaphor for divinity, metaphor for a divine being. Jesus actually ends up getting called the morning star in the book of Revelation. And the morning star, uh, most scholars think, is a reference to Venus, which is the last, oftentimes would be the last planetary thing you could see as the sun's coming up and the sky's getting brightest, brighter in the morning. You start to be able to see less and less uh, stars. And the last thing you can see before it's just a normal blue sky is typically Venus. And they called that the morning star because it's the last, it's the one that hangs on the latest. So pause for a second. Okay. Go to Isaiah 14, 12. And actually, before we go to Isaiah 14, 12, if you just scroll up a little bit, Isaiah 14, 3 and 4, it makes very clear what it is we're reading here. It says, on the day the Lord gives you relief from your suffering and turmoil and from the harsh labor forced on you, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. And then we start reading. So God's giving the prophet Isaiah literally a taunt, basically this, this challenge to the king of Babylon. It is explicitly stated in the text. That is who this is to. And when you get down to verse 12, you have this line. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. Now, one of the words we didn't see in that Revelation passage, which equated dragon, Satan, serpent, and devil. One of the words we didn't see, which you and I have both heard, since we were little, is Lucifer. All that Lucifer is, is the Latin translation of morning star. Really? That is the word that showed up in the Vulgate as the Latin word for star. The Vulgate was the, the first Latin translation of the Bible. Think about luminescence or illuminous, the root being light. It's the same, same root here for morning star. The metaphor in Isaiah is that the king of Babylon is so pompous and haughty and arrogant and has essentially seated himself with such high power that he's like the one star that refuses to go down at the end of the day. That's the metaphor. And there's no, there's no explicit statement here that this passage is about anything other than the king of Babylon. So it's using this morning star language to, to use a known referent to make an analogy to the king of Babylon. In the Vulgate, then, when you're reading this verse in Latin, what you read is how you have fallen from heaven, Lucifer, son of dawn. Okay, but, and we'll get into this some more. Much of the uh, intertestamental literature, like the book of Enoch, uh, which we're going to talk about, gets into explaining, sort of depicting some mythology about that primordial fall, which we were talking about, of, of divine Elohim entering into rebellion, most likely before the, the Nakash convinces Adam and Eve, uh, entices them as well. There's, there's literature there that, that references that as, as beings coming down, is this downward trajectory from heaven to earth. I mean, that's the, that's the cosmologies. They live up there. We live down here. But the idea is, and there's actually one story on a specific mountain, which we're going to talk about later, where there's a, there's a story of the uh, some of the Elohim coming down to earth to do what happens in Genesis 6, which is they start sleeping with women, most likely implying rape of women, and ends up being this kind of further act of rebellion. So when you're reading this, 
And you're thinking, okay, you already have this one Nakash character who somehow was representative of the divine rebellion. And then you have this framework in your head for divine beings, at least one of them, who came down from heaven to entice the women from that place. Then you read this name of a, of a figure, how you have fallen from heaven, Lucifer, you uh, son of the dawn, you have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low nations. It sounded so much like a divine rebellion figure that Lucifer then got tacked onto this amalgam. Later, Christian readers, Lucifer then got tacked onto this amalgam of the Satan, Nakash figure. It was another name added to it. And then, once it was added to it, this idea of a fall from heaven, reading Isaiah 14, 12, stopped being about the king of Babylon and started being now about this amalgam figure, Satan, the devil, the Nakash. And so kind of the tension here is that in the end, that's just a language confusion. That's just uh, essentially an an error in interpretation that is part of actually what led a lot of the church fathers to have the view that, that we've actually inherited a version of, which is a primordial fall of Satan, one figure, fell from heaven as this Lucifer decided to rebel against God, this primordial fall turned into this kind of like arch nemesis of God. That's where we get it. The irony, a lot of that is just built on a misunderstanding of the text, but actually the kind of case that we're going to sort of continue to walk through isn't all that far from it. The important point of contention for us here is that it's not starting with there being any one captain of this crew. The Nakash isn't isn't framed in the Genesis 3 account as like some great leader. He's not said to have any position of high authority. What he is is representing when he says you will be like us is this whole realm of beings that is somehow involved in this rebellion. And none of the Old Testament writers are doing anything to develop like one figure who is God's chief rival or the chief enemy of humanity. And not even the Satan references to a Hasatan, a Satan in the Old Testament are doing that. But what happens later, intertestamental text to then New Testament, is essentially like an effort to, hey, let's make sense of all of these ideas, compile them together, and you essentially have these figural representations. And we'll explore much more later who Satan is and what the demons are and all that. Okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. Okay, that was question one. Uh, question. That's what. That wasn't even a question. That was great. <laughs> that wasn't even a question. Um. Okay. But that that's that's helpful. I knew there was something there, but to realize that that was actually talking about the king of Babylon is, and Babylon in the Bible is an archetype, right? Um, yeah. So that's that's pretty crazy. Yeah. Too. So it's kind of justified, right? Because Babylon is archetypal. The Tower of Babel, which we're going to talk about next episode, is the Tower of Babylon. It's meant to be an archetype, and. And a king is representative of his people. So the reason Isaiah 14 is in there is in part to be an archetypal type of text. So it is, in a sense, justifiable to to want to extrapolate that out further. Right, right. Okay, let's go back to Genesis 1 and 3. Here's my question.
Genesis 1, we see that humans were created in our image. Uh, not our image, but the word our is used there. Our. Um, where is that? Okay, right here. Then God said, let us make humanity in our image to resemble us so that they may take charge of the fish of the sea. Okay, so that's what we said. What you were saying in our the fall episode was that essentially that means created in the image of these divine beings. Is that what we're calling them? Divine yeah. beings? Okay. Um, okay, so we have that. And then we have Genesis 3, which says, why am I in 1 Timothy? Come on. All right. Genesis 3. Okay. So it's the temptation of the serpent to the woman. God knows that on that day you will eat from it. uh, On the day that you eat from it, you will see clearly and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Um, And we said there that that's saying you will be like the gods. You will be like the divine beings. So, Here's the question. You probably see where I'm going with this. Genesis 1 talks about created in the image of the gods. Genesis 3 says, if you eat that, you will know good and evil. You'll be like the gods. Mm-hmm. Why do they need to eat of the thing in order to become like something that they were created in the image of? Yeah, right, right. And that, and that's, that was the clarification, clarification we try to walk through is, in what sense are they now moving from not being like them to becoming like them at the point of eating, eating. The Which is where we fruit. said they, they knew good. They, that's the air they breathed was good. They already knew good. And now they're knowing evil. evil wasn't and that the piece line okay. is repeated twice by the serpent and then affirmed by God that that is a difference. So to be made in the image of God, the icon of God, the reflection of God is, is about essence and it's about purpose, vocation to be made like the Elohim who were the, at that point, the rulers of everything that was made to be made in that image was to to be kings rulers and with a a kind of shared and we'll get into this later a, a sense of shared divine essence at the beginning us we humans adam and eve weren't ever supposed to die there is very much as they were enfleshed they were natural beings they weren't spirits but they somehow were sharing in the divine essence so that already exists where you get th- chapter three there's another sense where something is true of Elohim that has not yet been true of Adam and Eve. And that is part of the argument to me that says something had to have already happened with them that they would have gone from knowing just good to knowing evil, which is why I'm suggesting that there has to have been some sort of fall assumed. It doesn't get into the sense of how what the, the scale of that fall was but it's to it what it's asserting is that the elohim knew both good and evil as a race of beings essentially and that now adam and eve are going to take the human race into that same oh, same place right okay i got you so being created in the image of something doesn't necessarily mean you have obviously doesn't necessarily mean you have all of the knowledge and everything that that thing has yeah so. there's a reason why it's different language of made in the image and Genesis 1, and you will become like in Genesis ah, 3. Yeah, okay. Okay, uh, final question. Let's see if I can put this one together. So we said a lot in the fall episode about humans losing the divine beings, as in that was the whole reason for the difficulty in bearing children. You need to make all these children so that you can work the ground because you have to rule this land now without those divine beings. But 
it seems to me in Genesis 3, like by taking the fruit and giving into the temptation of the devil, the devil, I just, that's not even there. The serpent. <laughs> Look at me. Um, by taking that, aren't they kind of joining the quote unquote dark side? And why would they lose those beings by giving into the rebellion that, you know what I'm saying? That, yeah. That, and I think, I mean, honestly, I think it's a really rich story that literally takes place in like less than a page of writing. So the idea uh, that I'm suggesting is that what makes the most logical sense, and again, there's Jewish literature that was saying these same things, is that the main motivation, and let's just be straight, the world you and I come from, there is no explanation for the motivation of the serpent. There's none. There's no explanation for what he's trying to gain. Uh, from what the Nakash is trying to gain from this. Except it was God's and, plan all along. <laughs> oh, you get us in the bad places, Nick. Uh, so the idea is, and um, kind of this exposition that I'm championing, there is a rebellion. We aren't we're told how long in space-time or in time. Space-time? <laughs> well, I guess there's no space, apparently. Who knows? I'm getting in over my head. Uh, how We're not told how long God existed with other divine spirit beings before he created what we're reading about in Genesis 1 and 2. We don't know. It's not important to the biblical authors. What we do know is that something happened in between Genesis 1 and Genesis 3 that put them in the position of knowing both good and evil. And what I think some of that logically is trying to indicate to us is is it is what is happening in the creation accounts that triggers the rebellion. And that, that was the case I was making last time. If, if you picture this world where, where you know, if, so <laughs> let's use a, a horrendously loaded example right now. If the president of the United States has his top 50, like closest chief of all his different uh, cabinets and whatnot, and they're his, his 50 people that are tasked with having the most power in his little empire. And then... Let's let's say this is this is I'm not making the case that this is an analogy for the creation accounts, but let's say then Trump goes and like takes over like three little countries in Central America, and it's now up to us to we like pillage everyone, destroy everybody, and now it's absolutely up to none us. of this sounds crazy to me either. I'm just like okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Let's happens. just okay. imagine it happens like 2022, uh, and it's up to Trump to decide who gets to rule this land that we now have. What is the feeling of those 50 most high-powered officials in Trump's cabinet going to be if he chooses completely other people, other than the highest-ranking people, to say, you guys get to rule this new space? Yes, yeah, I get that. But then, okay, so he chooses someone else. That someone else then is is tempted into also seizing power like like those that group did by that group. And then doesn't he, then that person, those people kind of join that group? Then? Right. So, okay. So and how do they lose yeah, that so group? So I get your tension, but before we jump forward, so if we recognize that there's a logical sense in which the motivation is explained by a jealousy for control and power and rulership, mm-hmm. then in a sense, what the Nakash is doing, and we made this case last time, is saying, join our side, like join the rebellion. The Nakash is the serpent. Right? Yes. Just to reset, yeah. Uh, The serpent, if we use that word, is saying join the rebellion. And maybe that's actually really what the serpent wanted. But does it matter if the main point is that you wanted that person's power, that they join your side or not, or the fact that they just got taken off the throne themselves? Hmm. And we're going to get into this, 
but the the background the the worldview background behind the text is these same sons of God, and this is the next part of the fall we're going to get into, end up becoming the rulers of the world. They end up becoming the gods of the other nations who replace, essentially, Adam and Eve as the ones who are truly ruling the world. And the reason that they end up getting worshipped in a form of idolatry is because they actually are the gods of those nations. Hmm. And in a sense, they didn't have to get Adam and Eve's loyalty to their side in order to have basically a massive victory in what they're trying to accomplish, which was to get power for themselves. So if the picture was Adam and Eve have all the cards on earth and, and the Elohim have all the cards in heaven, in the heavenly realm, uh, all, both of that happening underneath God's power, if that's the, the picture, and now what we end up looking at is actually this world here is not ruled by humans in the, the deepest sense of the biblical worldview. It, the, in ultimately, it's, it's being affected by the gods, the demonic beings, the malevolent, rebellious spirits. Um, this is New Testament theology through and through, that the thing we are at war against, Paul's not theology is, the thing yeah. we are at war against is, is principalities and powers. There are clear connections between those words that he is using and this rebellion rulership language, the divine rulership language. These are divine rulers. And so essentially they win. They don't win in full, but basically it's, it's a complete fall. The whole creation suffers for it, but humans specifically gave up a whole heck of a lot. Hmm. And what ends up happening, the kind of rulership that happens in place ends up being horrible atrocious and nothing like God wanted. So that then creates this, you know, narrative sense that something has to be done about this. Somehow the, the world needs to be set to right and getting back on track to being ruled well and fixed from this fall. And therefore, and we're going to get into this a lot, and I think it's one of the most important pieces for Christian theology, especially we'll get into issues of power and all that. There's the sense that we're supposed to be overtaking rulership of the world from the beings that stole it from Humanity taking it back because it was it was God wanted humans to be ruling this place in the first place. That was why he created Adam and Eve and, and called them to be the kings. But then we get in the question of what kind of people would actually be able to rule this mm. world as God had originally intended Adam and Eve and their family to rule it. So that is some of the backdrop that in my life until the last year or two has just been missing. And you mm. end up then coming up with explanations for a lot of texts and passages and New Testament epistles that are just, now I look at it and go, just missing the point and missing some really big points about what this whole story is about. So we don't have to get into this now, but you believe this has like real implications for how we live, live with each other, do Christianity, be Christians, all that kind of stuff. You believe this has real implications, real changes can be made if we see this differently. Yeah, totally. I mean, we said up front that uh, I feel like you kind of have to pay our dues while we build a new framework because so much of this is so foreign and we're missing a lot of pieces. But once we start to put that framework together and uh, and then go back and try to do Christian theology and life and ministry and community and all that, a bunch of things start to pop. And just one little example is more of a teaser. We'll get into this later on. If you look at 1 Corinthians 6, some of you guys may remember a kind of like, uh, what? So Paul is dealing with essentially disputes in the church in Corinth and how very practical matter of how Christians who aren't getting along, the situation he's railing against is the idea that a, a Christian would sue another Christian. And he just drops a little bomb of what I'll call this divine council worldview. And 
not just that there are other spiritual beings, but it's this bomb of uh, Paul's indicating this whole cosmological redemptive theology of what the fall actually was, what what was ought to be, and therefore where redemption is trying to take us. So he goes in verse 1, If any of you have dispute with another, do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? I mean, do do you? <laughs> like, I didn't know that. I forgot about that. Uh, Haven't thought about angels more? since uh, that Newsboy song, you know? <laughs> how much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. Paul's just doing basic pastoral, situational care or reconciliation, trying to deal with a couple people taking each other to court. And he goes to the the logic that he assumes everybody understands. Everybody. These illiterate new Christians are able to know, which is that God's people— are going to not only judge the world, literally rule the world, but are going to rule angels. You're supposed to know that, and then you're supposed to be able to deduce from that that you sure as hell ought to be able to figure out how to not take each other to court. Hmm. And I I bring this up as kind of a, as an interest-peaking example, but we'll get into the study later. The word angels ends up being used in the New Testament in a bunch of places where in Hebrew, the word Elohim would have been used. In Greek, the word angelos or angel is just a transliteration gets used. Paul's cluing us in here. This is a little window for us moderners into what he actually has in his head is that the church, the people of God, are in some way being used to reconcile what originally went wrong in Genesis 3 and beyond and to get back to what the goal of of creation and the creation of Adam and Eve was, which was for humanity, God's chosen humans to rule the world in partnership with him. And who's in the way? Who's doing that right now? In a large part in in Paul's theology, it's angelic beings, Elohim, who through what we were just talking about, through this uh, successful tactic in the garden, essentially seized power in the, the world, the realm where they weren't supposed to have all that much power. And there's a whole litany of other places where we'll go with this in the New Testament. So that's just one small example that eventually we'll get back to. Not only does this stuff matter, it's relevant. It is weird and uncomfortable and we got to keep working through it. But honestly, it'll flip some of the most important paradigms and doctrines Hmm. of our faith on their head. Yeah, it seems like that's going to change everything, the way we think about what we're here for, what we're doing. And yeah, we're not just waiting around for the rapture. All right. All That's right. cool. That's question and uh, in response, and we'll get to the fall part two next. If you wouldn't mind, if you had just a couple minutes, if you could jump on iTunes right now and leave a rating and a review for this show, it helps other people find the show and it takes like 30 seconds. If you could do that real quick, that'd be sweet. Big shout out to Kale Haugen. All the music you hear on Almost Heretical is produced and recorded by him. And finally, we're ready to take questions. If you have any questions, give us a call at 503 343 4788 
and just record a message with your question and we'll use that audio on the air. Again, that's 503-343-4788. Catch you guys next time. Peace. Let's say welcome to...